1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly Communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this, communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved brain-to-brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place in time where people meet to represent and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too. And meaning is not something we send or receive. It is something that we make. I'm your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors and reviewers, to editors and managers, as well as to scholars whose work touches or focuses on communication and on how the written word of science makes known the real world we know. My guest today is Natalie Aviles, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Virginia. Natalie specializes in Sociological Theory, Science and Technology Studies called STS, cultural sociology, science and innovation policy, and sociology of healthcare. Natalie's research explores how federal laboratories in the U.S. National Cancer Institute have guided scientific and public policy innovation from the post-war period to the present day. Natalie's first book, An Ungovernable Foe, Science and Policy Innovation in the U.S. National Cancer Institute, has just been published by Columbia University Press. So let's begin today's episode. Natalie Aviles on scholarly communication. Hi, Natalie, welcome to the program.
0: Hello, Dan. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Now, my background is in communication and linguistics in particular. And nonetheless, while reading your work, I, uh, w- which I will certainly link to in the show notes for people who are interested, a number of the articles and, of course, the book that you cited for me, while reading your work, I was even more amazed at the ways that culture forms and how things that seem to us to be so entirely objective actually come back to the way that people do things. Again, being a linguist, I'm kind of used to looking at the world in that way, and still, it was amazing now and again. <laughs> I'm actually going to just sort of kick us off with a brief quote uh, about 30 seconds from one of your articles. This one happens to be, state planning, cancer vaccine infrastructure and the origins of the oncogen theory, which was uh, co-authored together with Robin Scheffler. And I think it stands in for a lot of ways for what it is that through your methodology you're able to discover. And let me just give the quote and we'll just take it from there. The quote is, we claim You, the co-authors, we claim that the development of this infrastructure through Cold War systems management techniques was in the end generative of new kinds of knowledge. Infrastructure created new material conditions essential to the study of cancer viruses, but these conditions, conditions neither determine scientific outcomes nor merely aid the observation of natural phenomena. Instead, it was the working through of unpredictable experimental phenomena within the infrastructure that the NCI's system of public health governance created that produced new innovations. The research supported by the programs during its operative years yielded neither proof of a cancer virus nor a vaccine, but it did play a vital role in the emergence of a new theory of cancer causation that also promised to place explanation of cellular growth and development on a whole as a whole, on a molecular basis, the cellular oncogen theory. Although this theory confounded the aims of the NCI's cancer virus programs, its impetus, key experiments, and validation were productively entangled with the infrastructure created. And that's the end quote. I mean, of course, you can translate this into words that would make sense for a listener, but I think let's it's, it's pretty amazing what's coming out of this. <laughs> um, please sh- share with us uh, your your take on, on on that particular quote there.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. So I to distill it into probably the most accessible interpretation is really to go back to the reason that I study scientists at work to begin with, which is um, The fact of of science as a creative human enterprise is utterly fascinating to me as a sociologist and as someone who is deeply interested in the actual technical dimension of the science that's getting done as well. um, I I get a sense of excitement in reading the publications that scientists write. Uh, But I think that, you know, science is such an incredible enterprise, not only because it creates this, Incredibly efficacious um, and very well validated knowledge about the world that we live in, but also because it it's made by humans <laughs> and it's it's made by humans who respond to a lot of the elements in their environment that we might not typically think about as being influential upon you know how people structure experiments or or what goals they have for their research agendas. And this particular paper, uh, which, as you noted, I wrote with Robin Scheffler, who's a historian uh, at MIT, is really illustrating how in this very specific historical moment uh, in the Cold War period in the 1960s and the 1970s, we had a very distinct way in the United States of thinking about how innovation gets done. And it was based around how we organized uh, Cold War aerospace research and weapons research um, things like NASA and the Polaris missile systems. And uh, people tried to apply that to discovering the ultimate cause of most cancers and to developing a preventative strategy, which in this case was a universal cancer vaccine. And what is remarkable compared to those other Cold War technologies is that uh, when you're doing something in engineering, you usually know how everything works and, and you just have to make a system that can execute on that knowledge. And the folks at the National Cancer Institute, which is um, the nation's largest uh, government institute that, that studies cancer and it's part of the National Institutes of Health, um, they were very well aware that we did not know the ultimate cause of cancer. And so the idea that they would develop a vaccine, a universal cancer vaccine, was an incredibly ambitious goal. And it was one that they felt very, very confident that they could apply the means of organizing research and development from aerospace and weapons engineering um, to accomplish. And of course, it, you know, taking at face value what that objective was to, to develop a universal cancer vaccine, it failed. <laughs> I, I don't have to, to spoil it for anybody. We did not develop a universal cancer vaccine at the time. And in fact, fascinatingly, um, it turned out that the original hypothesis that viruses cause, you know, most or all human cancers, um, ended up being flipped on its head. And so the, the gist of that paper is really to show how this large collection of laboratories in the National Cancer Institute started to pursue this idea that uh, viruses cause most cancers. It was an unpopular idea beyond a lot of those federal laboratories, but they were able to build up a lot of funding, a lot of collaborations with outside laboratories that they contracted with um, through this novel uh, funding mechanism. And they created a massive research infrastructure for trying to discover which viruses might be causing cancer. And uh, though, again, they didn't discover any viruses, what one of their contractors uh, did discover, and these contractors were um, working with Harold Varmus and uh, Michael J. Bishop at the University of California, San Francisco, what they discovered is that if you flipped that hypothesis on its head, and rather than say, well, it's virus material that's creating cancer by infecting cells, they found cellular material that, you know, is is essentially native to our um, biological makeup. And that's what's actually being triggered to to cause cancers. And so in this story of failure um, is this incredible story of how people creatively generate hypotheses. In this case, by taking the basic premise of viruses cause cancer um, by, you know, transforming cellular material and flipping on its head, uh, based on actual laboratory findings that they couldn't explain otherwise. And essentially saying, well, what if um, it's actually in our DNA? And so the, these labs did a whole lot of evolutionary research. They did a whole lot of experiments, obviously, to, to verify this. But that creation, and this is why uh, Robin and I say it was generative, That creation really came out of the experiments that they were doing to try to support this much larger, well-funded hypothesis that viruses cause cancer. And it was only when they couldn't explain what they were observing in their experimental apparatus that they then said, well, what if we're looking at it the wrong way? And they made that creative maneuver in the context of this very large federal effort to actually find this virus so that a vaccine could be developed. Um, And it's stories like that, right, that where you actually take a step back and you look at what's the context for this research that you can actually start to understand innovation and creativity as something that humans do, uh, you know, in in terms of how we organize science. Um, So this is this is one of my favorite stories, in part because it's a story of failure and then sort of creatively recovering from failure. And I think scientists can relate to that. Um, success is kind of rare. Um, when we see it, we always want to take a lesson from it. But I think when we observe failure, too, we can often take very unexpected lessons from it. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think the, this sort of uh, of the oncogene, the cellular oncogene hypothesis from a failed viral oncogene hypothesis is just really instructive. Of how important the social organization of science actually is to the knowledge that we generate,
1: and that was precisely the thing that fascinated me, <laughs> um, because you you think that there's clearly, well, okay, clearly maybe not be the right may not be the right word here, but very often people would imagine that hey, when we're dealing with cancer research, you know, we're dealing with people who are applying the scientific method, um, you know, whether it was done. In America at this particular time, or in Europe at that particular time, or elsewhere, God knows when, and so on. You know that's not the deciding factor. Yeah, it's going to have some influence. Maybe there's more money or better materials or something. But what you're describing through that narrative that you've just given us briefly is, is that that is, as you say, generative. Yeah, I mean it. It puts me in mind again from my field of linguistics of the idea that, well, the the meaning that was behind it, was what innovation meant to those people in that context at that time. And it was that meaning of innovation that was part of what structured much of what went on here.
0: Absolutely. Um, And I really think the exploration of the role that meaning plays in innovation is sort of the unifying theme of my research agenda. I have Certain theoretical ways of getting at it um, that are probably worth just sort of laying out for for the listener, because I can tell you that I'm a pragmatist, um, (laughs) but that doesn't mean much to most people. Um, So, just very briefly, I'll I'll say that pragmatism is a particular approach that comes out of philosophy that essentially wants us to understand human creativity. um, In my case, you know, scientific innovation as something that people do actively as they interact with their environments. And what sociologists can do with that sort of philosophical understanding is to take the broadest view possible of what a human social environment actually is and try to understand all the different ways that people's environmental context, whether it's you know the rules of their formal organizations, which is what I tend to focus on, Or um, much broader ways of communicating meaning, such as language, metaphor, Uh, what these are actually doing to help scientists think about their problems and pursue certain directions for their research rather than other directions for their research. And the exciting thing for me as a sociologist is to be able to, you know, go into what scientists publish, to go into the historical archives that record what people did and what they talked about. Um, and to talk to scientists themselves and try to piece back together what that context was and what those scientists found so meaningful about it and what those meetings actually did to shape their research going forward.
1: I mean, this, this view that you have of, you know, the human social environment, I mean, it, it, it plays out, as you're implying, you know, anywhere that you know, groups of any sort sort of come about and start making meaning of any sort. You even mentioned, say, metaphor, how a metaphor um, is interpreted or why it might come up or something along those lines. But I mean, if you, you you know, like a skipping stone, go back through history and hit different moments in Western um, culture, you're going to find, you know, times where people just couldn't imagine thinking of something that we take as normal. Right. And, you know, if, you know, that a, that a gay couple, just to take a silly example, perhaps a trivial example, you know, that a gay couple may actually openly live their lives and be in a state that would be considered a family nowadays. And, you know, you go back into the late 19th century and it's like, that's, you know, it's not even on people's radar. It's, you know, it's not even a matter of discrimination. It's like, it doesn't exist almost in the sense. And 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 what I'm getting, and the reason I'm, I'm going into this this way is is to sort of illustrate what I'm getting from Your work is that, you know, this sort of way that we can think or can't think of something because the meaning is available or not available to us through our context is happening also in science.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up that specific example because the first article I ever published was about uh, the changing ideas around a relationship that was first posited in 1841 by a uh, Italian physician named Domenico Rigoni Stern that certain cancers are related to sexual activity and uh, this is a great little history I, I actually love this and I think if, if any of your listeners are interested in medical history this is probably my favorite uh, pot little story <laughs> that they might want to go and read about and um, Back in 1841, this Italian physician could only imagine sexual intercourse uh, as being something that married women did and celibate women didn't do. And so, you know, the, the sets of meanings that, that are actually available to people, when they say there seems to be a relationship between uh, nuns who are presumably sexually celibate and married women who are presumably sexually active. Uh, seems to correlate to the incidence of what was then called uterine cancer and what we would now call cervical cancer. And in this paper, one of the fun things that I was able to do is to look at how uh, sexual mores, ideas about um, how people have sex and who has sex and who has sex with who else changed quite dramatically in the ensuing 150 years, such that there's this actual coincidence of First, this idea that um, there's some sexually transmitted agent that seems to, you know, occur with sexual intercourse that that makes people susceptible to certain cancers. Um, with the idea that uh, same sex sexual activity actually exists and probably exists at, at a fairly routine scale in some places. And what this understanding among scientists of changing sexual mores of the acceptability of talking about, for example um male and male sexual relationships is that they started asking questions that they weren't asking before. Instead of just asking, well, how does sexual activity correlate with cervical cancer in women, assuming that there is a sexually transmitted agent that is causing cancer, they started to ask, well, what about other anogenital cancers? Um, and so what about anal cancer in gay men? And so they were able to ask completely different questions because over this very vast, Time horizon, very big cultural changes to how we think about sexuality um, allowed people to just ask different kinds of questions than they had before. And all of this contributed to building up this knowledge about the relationship between sexually transmitted viruses and different anogenital cancers in all kinds of different populations. Um, and something similar that I wasn't able to go into in that article, but has become more important today, is that um, head and neck cancers are, are also caused by uh, some of these viruses, like the human papilloma virus. Um, and that, you know, is based on a very expansive understanding of human sexuality. And I think those types of, of histories are fascinating um, and very illustrative of the relationship between big cultural meanings, the, the things that it is possible to imagine, and the tools that people actually have to hand to investigate them. And what I show in that article is that people actually structured their experiments around um, their ideas about who has sex and what human sexuality looked like, and that that helped to shape what kinds of questions people asked and what kinds of knowledge they generated around, um, you know, sex and, and sexually transmitted diseases.
1: And, and you you cited ahead of this um, interview, a number of articles, including your book as well, for me, uh, to get a sense of what it is that you research into. And, and one of those was environing innovation toward an ecological pragmatism of scientific practice. And this is just from last year. And I wonder in, in that idea of this ecological pragmatism, to take the story that you've just given us, which is which is wonderful to hear and uh, easy to imagine, I wonder if on a theoretical level, w- where does the pragmatistic, <laughs> pragmatic, I suppose, is probably what you would go with. Where, where does the pragmatic theory actually come in to allow, let's say, for those details to be to be drawn out in a way that Can explain more causally what's actually going on there?
0: Yes. So um, probably the most consequential way um, to think about this is is something that I try to communicate to a slightly broader audience in the book. Um, And I do this by using a philosopher named Joseph Rouse, who's uh, very much influenced by some of the contemporary philosophers who use pragmatism. And um, this approach is really about how we make Inferences, and you know, I'm I'm really studying how the social world helps people guide creativity. And what Joseph Rouse gives us is this very nice summary of the fact that when people are um, asking scientific questions and structuring experiments and trying to make inferences based on their experimental observations, they are at the same time always. Articulating some sense of uh, what is at issue. So, you know, what what are we actually talking about here? What is the, the thing that we're observing? And then what's at stake? So, what does it mean for us to say that this phenomenon that I've generated in the laboratory means this thing rather than this other thing? And this really nice summary of how people structure their inferences based on the issues and the stakes is uh, the legacy of of this pragmatist philosophy. And what I try to bring forward in the book, which is really about 70 years of history of people who were looking at the relationship between viruses and cancer, um, and at one point viruses and HIV AIDS as well, is I try to look at how the organization that they actually work in, which is the U S national cancer Institute gives them certain resources for making uh, the issues that they're studying and the stakes of, of their findings meaningful in relation to what that organization is trying to accomplish. So I talk about this a little bit in uh, the, the article that you just cited. um, And I, in both in the book and and in the article that you're talking about, I use the development of the human papilloma virus in the National Cancer Institute to try to illustrate the fact that um, the social organization of science is important not just because it structures who our teams are, but because it structures resource flows. So when you're in certain types of organizations, you have access to certain types of resources and certain. Uh, ways that you can get at those resources uh, that other people in other organizations might not have access to. But also very importantly, um, that when you're in an organization that has a strong commitment to a particular kind of mission, and in the United States, uh, the U.S. National Cancer Institute is a government organization. It's a federal research institute. And it has a dual mission. And that mission is essentially to fund the best science, but also to try to make an impact on human cancers. And so these people um, and the the principal actors in the story of the HPV vaccine innovation are uh, these scientists named Doug Lowy and John Schiller are in this organization and um, their motivations to do research uh, on a potential HPV vaccine are really influenced by the idea that they need to serve public health because they are members of this organization. And so the organizational mission of the the place where they work actually helps shape uh, the things that they do. And pragmatism helps us understand that, again, in this very neat way of asking, what are the issues and what are the stakes of this research? So what is it that they think that they're doing um, when they're doing research? And then what What could it possibly lead to, right? What's at stake here? And it's in talking to people that they have to be accountable to. So people in the federal government, because, you know, they have to talk to Congress, people who are scientific advisors to the Institute, because they also have advisory bodies, their sense of what the stakes of their research are change. Um, They get more ambitious. They say, hey, this could really, you know, make a big impact globally and not just in the United States. And then those changes in how they imagine the possible consequences of their research actually feed back um, into their research and they change their research design uh, to try to make uh, the issues of, of how they're structuring their research reflect the stakes that they they sort of over time believe their research to actually have and be and be oriented to. Um, so I think that what pragmatism gives us is really this awareness of The fact that people are actors in environments, you know, it's, it's, uh, pragmatism originally was influenced by the early development of evolutionary theory. We think about humans as, you know, being organisms that change their environment, that structure their environment to, to try to help them do things more efficaciously. And so these are great stories, um, of the development of the HPV vaccine and, the changing conception of what it's actually going to help people do over time that are in the book and and that are in this article that help us see how rich human environments actually are um, to the point where the way your organization is structured, the things that your organization puts emphasis on, its mission, its values, its reward systems, um, the infrastructures that allow resources to flow within that organization are really important parts of the environment and they shape science in very direct ways that we can study when we really go in depth and start unpacking what scientists are actually doing on the ground.
1: And and that's something I, I would like to explore, especially from the angle of the book, because there is so much narrative and, and as you say, rich on the ground work that goes on and uh, really pulls you in. It's a wonderfully written book as well. Um, but to stay just briefly on this theory level a little bit more, I love it when a theory, and that's what I've come in contact with pragmatism in an entirely different connection before, but it reminds me of, I, I love it when a theory, you know, simply explains so much. That's, that's I mean, that's good theory in my view. And and this idea of at issue and at stake is is doing just that. I mean, that's that's what I see as, you know, enabling you then to see more clearly you know how a scientist is thinking then how they uh, may enact that uh, thinking which sorts of processes get started and so on i mean this is a, this is a wonderful reminder that you know like mission statements and uh, reasons for being of institutes as you've just been saying are not you know just flimsy sort of outward You know, high gloss pamphlet stuff. You know, (laughs) this this really this really does come down into everybody's work. And also another thing I'd like to explore briefly with you is, you know, how scientists may, you know, today and whichever institute they happen to find themselves may reflect upon that, or or see what that is, or maybe even decide somehow to shape it. But I, I'm, I'm taking in so many different topics at once that shows <laughs> I'm disoriented. <laughs> but hey, l- let, me, let me stay at this theory level really briefly. This idea of at issue and at stake is, is wonderful because it matches up also so well with, with language in my view. Um, the sort of functional approach to langu- uh, linguistics that I take would, would, would very much understand what you're talking about there. I mean, the thing that's at issue is the representation. It's the proposition, right? This vaccine will work. Yeah. Whereas what's at stake is what's technically called the mood. So this vaccine will work. And then you get the response, will it? Well, you might even tag it and say, this vaccine will work, won't it? Right. So in other words, at stake is it may or may not. Right. So by declaring that it does, you sort of try to deny a reality where it's not going to. And I think just... In the language itself, you're already seeing play out this pragmatic view that you're talking about, which shapes so very much of how scientists act and think.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I think you've really nailed what I, what I find so useful about uh, this pragmatist approach to language. I mean, we commit ourselves to certain futures and scientists are hopeful people. They're whole human beings and they're fascinating to me as a sociologist because of that. Uh, and they have ambitions, and, and sometimes you know uh, they want to see very specific things happen in the world. And so pragmatism's attention is really to what can you make happen through action in the world, um, and how does that how is that shaped by the meanings that you bring to the table, and then how do the things you do in the world then feedback to shape the the way that you imagine your future. And so, what uh, what Joe Rouse, who you know is the person who first developed this very nice summary of issues and stakes, said is that the stakes always outrun where we happen to be, and I think that is really nice at encapsulating how ambitious and how future oriented scientists are when they think creatively, and being able to capture sort of the promissory uh, context of. Science as it's being made is really, really important. And um, to just stay on this theoretical note for, for just a moment, one of the things that I want to accomplish with this book is really to try to think about not just how scientists are creative, but how looking at a very specific group of scientists and their processes of creativity can help us understand how meaning is really important to scientists. And so the reason why I really came around to this conception of issues and stakes is that I, I went to um, in trying to, to understand what is different about um, federal scientists who work in a government bureaucratic agency and have to do their work in the context of a whole lot of transparency and oversight and very different accountability structures than we see in academia or in private industry. Um, You know, what's distinct about this environment? And what I found is that, you know, many people in government and public policy and political science and economics think about this in terms of, um, you know, principal agent problems. And so this is the theory that we tend to apply. And just in a nutshell, principal agent theory is this idea that um, you have a principal who's someone um, who has certain resources, and they have to delegate the execution of of certain tasks to an agent of theirs, and so when we think about federal scientists, you know they're working with a lot of taxpayer money, and they're trying to distribute this in the form of grants, and they're trying to accomplish something, right? So the NIH and the National Cancer Institute, as one of its um, constitutive agencies, are trying to be accountable to the taxpayers whose money funds them, and uh, I wanted to capture how scientists actually think about their accountability. Because one thing about bureaucracies is that when they get really complex, it's hard to tell how being someone who is, in essence, a kind of a bureaucrat really impinges on an active scientific program. (laughs) And these are active scientists, right? And so by looking at a lot of these scientists who sort of ascend to leadership positions and start having to be part of the policy conversation, by looking at how they think about You know, the goals of their research, um, what's at stake with their active research agendas as they're trying to help a bureaucracy meet its accountability requirements and, um, you know, satisfy taxpayers, but also satisfy their scientific advisors. You get to see something very specific that we don't often look at, especially in our um, economic models, and that's the idea of non monetary incentives. So we know in the science of science that monetary incentives can be very important to spurring innovation, but some people don't have very strong monetary incentives, and government employees are a great example of this, right? Their um, their salaries are determined by very strict schedules of, of government salaries, and there's some variation there, but there's not a lot. And so their opportunities for variable pay are, are much smaller than a lot of people who work in academia, who can sell patents, um, who work in industry, who can have you know, corporate bonuses. And so looking at how these scientists behave gives us a sense of, well, what's motivating people when you can largely hold money constant? What is it that they say really matters to them? And in this organization, uh, the scientists that I look at who are involved in, in these projects and ascend to that level of leadership where they become part of that policy conversation really want to see a certain world in the future. They want to see a world where they can make a difference to public health and to cancer outcomes. And so this particular case, just by looking at these federal bureaucrats, allows me to hold some things constant that the science of science, you know, often focuses on and say, well, what about meaning? How do people generate meaning and make their work meaningful to them? When, you know, we, we pretty much can predict what their financial outcome is going to be, because anything they invent becomes the property of the US government, (laughs) they have to find some other reason to keep being innovative. And that's the kind of insight that I think Historical research and qualitative social science research, so things like interviews and observations, really help us get at in a very textured and nuanced way, getting at how people understand their motivations, uh, especially successful creative people. Um, and some of these, you know, successful creative people are just very extraordinary in other ways uh, that I think, you know, creates questions for the science of science. Um, to continue pursuing. So I hope this qualitative work is also generative to people who are interested in policy, who are interested in um, unpacking and modeling these non-monetary incentives and and the impacts that they have on people, the cohort effects um, of who's going into government and why. I think there's a lot of really promising avenues for for other people to do research on as well. But for me, because... (laughs) I like to tell historical stories. I, I like to get in there and read what they were doing and try to imagine what it was like to be in the laboratory with them. I like to tell the narratives. I, I like to to reflect um, in my writing what people were really experiencing at the time and, and what their own understanding of what motivated them was. Um, but this, I hope, is the kind of thing that will be generative for other people to read as well.
1: Is it perhaps fair to say that your research focus or the augmentation that you'd like to see in your field, which is, I would say, fairly strongly in STS, um, but obviously sociology of science as well. But is it that you would like to see this meso level of analysis brought in? Perhaps also in particular, and this is where this historical aspect, I think, comes in so strongly in your work, this dimension of the time access being brought in as well. Because these are things that kind of require, you know, something below the level of philosophy of science on abstraction and perhaps something above the level of the minute citation count of, let's say, a science of science study.
0: Yes, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I think the meso level, which in sociology we would really talk about in terms of formal organizations, I think that's really important. And for a while in STS... We really were more focused on networks, and I think uh, Science of Science also does a lot of work with, with networks that are very insightful. Um, but there is something about being a person who goes to work every day in a formal organization that has rules and um, is temporally bounded in, in terms of how you structure your life and your career in that organization, and is also bounded in a particular space, um, there is something that we can get out of that. There are insights from looking at what life is like in formal organizations, which are bounded in really important ways, that I think can help us move our research forward. Um, And so because of the scale of organizations in terms of, you know, how much time you have to look at, to get these kinds of even semi-generalizable insights beyond just one individual. Um, It's about the size of of your sample of people. Um, It's about how long you look at the organization um, in terms of time. You know, the scale of this makes it such that case studies are really what people who are interested in formal organizations tend to do. Um, it's hard to do anything else, given, you know, the organizational world that we live in as, as academics, it has certain demands on us for productivity. And so people who study formal organizations, whether they're sociologists or psychologists or um, people in business and management or economists, right, um, we, we really uh, create case studies and depend on other people to, to try to help us generalize beyond that meso level. Um, and so I think we're very good at, at trying to generate theories and revise theories based on observations of real world empirical data. Um, but I'm a very interdisciplinary scholar. STS is an incredibly interdisciplinary field. Sociologists are also famously very methodologically diverse in our inclinations. We do everything from survey research to ethnographies. And um, I really see this as a collective enterprise. I'm, I'm practicing what I preach. Um, and I see it as, you know, it's, it's a very collaborative interchange that I think the science of science has um, going for it in terms of how we can generate knowledge that's going to help scientists um, discipline themselves and understand themselves better as well. So uh, being an interdisciplinary scholar, believing that science is a very collaborative enterprise, um, I think that work that people like myself do, which is very qualitative, very historical, very case-based, um, can inform other work going forward.
1: Now, most certainly, I can see those those crossovers and those link-ups. In, in fact, you draw them so often in the work that you do. Uh, one thing I need to draw attention to, though, which, which, which you said uh, a bit earlier while you were talking about um, the need to get down to the level of you know the individual science scientist doing his or her work uh, this idea that how important meaning actually is to scientists and meaning i think in that sense and and please unpack this if you if if i misspeak or, or misinterpret mm-hmm. but meaning in that sense was purpose for sure so that's what I, I drew from the way that, let's say, the National Cancer Institute was, was sort of organized and that it was this federal type uh, institute, which differed then from the academic or the industrial type institute. But also that meaning it captures very much in, in the sense I would understand it in, in functional linguistics, this idea of what it is that is our interest and what are we representing? So, in other words, the changes that occurred for conceptualizing cancer viruses or cancer causation and so on came about as many of much of your work describes through the meaning of what was created in that social organization.
0: Yes, um, I, I do think um, I mean I, I think meaning uh, is one of those very big mouthfuls that i try yeah, to say yeah it's take a
1: terrible word the way isn't it <laughs> <laughs> um
0: yes and and actually this i think this is why i like the the very um very concise you know structuring of the concept of issues and stakes i mean yeah. it's yeah. a way of thinking about well meaning can come in multiple forms and um what it does though is that if we assume that people really do believe uh, the things that they tell us about what they find meaningful in their work is that they're committing to something, right. Um, they're committing themselves to certain actions. Um, and you know, where you can tell a commitment seems fairly genuine is when people change their experimental apparatus or, um, you know, the, uh, the infrastructure that they use to access materials, for example. So um, that's when you know, a scientist really does believe what they're telling you. Um, and, uh, you know, to to try to understand the stakes as being um, partly on the horizon, right, um, as being something that people would like to see Um, and can be committed to seeing um, based on how they're changing their research and maybe where they're publishing um, and how many postdocs they have, for example, and what those postdocs are trained in or what they're training their postdocs in. Uh, But that is always just a little bit out of reach. And I think SDS has done a great job um, in talking about discourse, right, And, and how the ways that scientists just talk about what they're doing and what they would like to see happen reflects, um, the things that they value and and find meaningful. Um, but I think that you're right in talking a little bit about motivation because there, there has to be something a little bit aspirational there, right? There there's a future that people want and a lot of what they're doing is, is really grasping at that. And there's something a little bit ineffable about that, that, um, I, I think I find slightly precious, if, I'll, if I'm being very honest, right, as, as a qualitative um, and historical sociologist, um, to hear people talk about the world that they would like to see um, tells us something about meaning and, and maybe gives us some insights into well, if we want to motivate people and, and create organizations that can serve them better, especially when something like innovation is the goal, then there are ways of. You know, helping people to realize a world that they value um, and a world that they want to make real. And I think what is so great about this example of the National Cancer Institute as a case study is that we can see that happen in real time because this organization is so transparent. All of its paperwork gets preserved and put in a historical archive, and um, we have access to it by rights as American citizens to, to be able to read um, what the people in this organization were actually up to. And, um, I think you really see them serving their ambitions in a way that coincides with what the organization is committed to. And so organizations shape people. And I think that's an insight that we can pursue and and that ought to really inform us going forward. Um, It shapes the work that people can do because it's how resources get allocated, but it also shapes the way that people find meaning in their work. Um, And that can change, right? There's this great episode um, in the book that I talk about that relates to this um, idea of translational research, which really emerged in the National Cancer Institute in the 1990s. And translational research is this idea that we have all of these um, basic science breakthroughs that you know are at the bench side—they're very abstract, they're very fundamental, but they've got to be worth something, right? They've got to be worth um, cashing in to produce some kind of medical technology or, or some kind of um, new treatment or some kind of public health strategy. And the idea of translational research is that we ought to invest in taking those basic research insights and then making something useful and applied out of them. And This was a big shift change in the organization and in what the organization valued. And suddenly people were talking a lot more about high risk, high reward research. They were talking about learning from failure. Um, They were investing in a lot of different things and they were asking people to, to figure out what they thought the possible translational consequences of their work could be. And when your organization starts asking you, well, can you think about what possible uses might come from the work that you're doing. You tend to develop, you know, ways of of imagining a future that's meaningful for you to the extent that you're really investing in this idea of translational research. And so that feedback dynamic between what organizations value and how the people who work in those organizations make those values meaningful to them, given what they're actually working on, um, I think gives us really great insights about meaning and insights about meaning that do capture that sort of, you know, projective, future-oriented pie-in-the-sky quality that meaning can have for scientists who just want to think really big about what their research can truly mean for the world.
1: I mean, all I can say there is here, here. <laughs> I mean, I, I, there's not really. I mean, there's so much uh, that, uh, that, again, as I started off this interview with, it's just fascinating and, and that overlaps. I mean, with the way that I as a linguist go about looking at things. I mean, when, when you say that organizations shape people or allow or disallow certain ways of thinking or certain ways of acting, if you like. I mean, just your example of the 1990s and translational uh, medicine translational research I mean that 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 is in essence the discourse shaping the way that people ask act um, you know and it's one of those moments I, I happen as my listeners will know to work together with scientists helping them uh, publish um, at the moment computer scientists and it's like one of the first things when I enter into an institute will be like yeah we just need to sort of write this up it's not really you know it doesn't really, have to be perfect or da 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 whatever it might be that they're saying. And you know, they don't necessarily they do at some point start to appreciate when I say actually it matters everything the way that you say it and whom you address it to and why. You know, and after a few months that starts to sink in and this is exactly what you're saying. You know, I mean, geez, you know, translational It's a new discourse, right? I mean, it opens up an entire field. I mean, this is when a scientist was either ahead or behind their times. Both are possible. Speaking about words and things and ways of going into the research that nobody else understands, right? And it's not because it's not English. Everybody's using English now. It's because it's not the discourse. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I mean there people people vary in their opinions about these sorts of things right
1: um, <laughs> well i suppose lot... i put my opinion there right now
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, but you're you're right in that um from the perspective of the sociologist like this is fascinating because when you say translational research well what does that mean and there was this big debate about what does translational research mean what is translation is this just a metaphor is there you know a real model at work here um, and there were debates between people who were very cynical about translational research saying oh this is just the next big fad and people who were saying no we this is the wave of the future i think you're absolutely right and what's interesting to me as a sociologist is when we have these big paradigm shifts in things like you know innovation policy and because of the the temporal scope of this book i'm able to look at 70 years where There are at least three big paradigms that occur um, in innovation policy around cancer research. And it goes from that Cold War policy down to no, we need to do basic science for the market, especially. And then um, now we're at translational research. And it's utterly fascinating to observe the debates that happen, um, but also to see people just trying to do their work in the context of these much bigger historical changes, because ultimately, scientists have to work in organizations that might commit themselves to things that those scientists don't personally believe <laughs> to be the right thing to do. Um, right. and that, or, That's actually you know,
1: what, what I'm driving at there when I, when I say, you know, these, these terms and this discourse and how it plays out, just as you're saying, you know, in the individual scientist, next paper, right. Next submission and so on. Um, you know, it matters where they're writing from whom they're writing to and, you know, how they frame that. Um, you know, this is on the most micro of levels, clearly, this next submission, which may not even make it into publication, or if it does, it may not even get the citations that the person hopes for and so on. But but nonetheless, and and, and this is perhaps the... Sloppiest and clumsiest segue into <laughs> into other, another topic. I certainly want to broach with you of you know the meaning that your work can have. You've you've actually broached this a number of times in speaking, but the meaning that your work can have for the individual scientist, or at least let's say at an institutional level. Uh, just to sort of cite an example, I mean you're saying that hey, if we have this sort of federal agency type structure, then we're likely to get this sort of scientist working there, whether it draws them there or they become that is perhaps another question. But, you know, so that can shape the sorts of research that we may be able to produce. You know, this is something to think about on that level. But it's interesting also on a individual level for the person who is, you know, trying to publish their work to be realizing you know, where the meaning of science in the discourse is occurring and not just in the technical side.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I I did write the book in the hopes that, you know, um, your average educated reader could, could actually pick it up and mostly understand it. I've, sometimes we have to take a few detours into some obscure jargon when we're talking about, you know, what specifically virologists are doing in, in a particular period of time. But in general, I, I do hope that people can read the book and gain some insights about scientific practice, and and maybe even, you know, shape some of their practice to to better fit what they would like their their objectives objectives to be. And I think thinking about the individual scientist, the thing that's very distinctive about the scientists that I structure the narrative around is that they attain some level of leadership, such that they actually can start. To shift the way that their organization thinks about um, the stakes of of the research that's going on in there. And it's a very big organization, and they're talking to a very specific audience of policymakers. But I think in general, the more conscious, the more self conscious scientists can be about what motivates them, um, about what makes them happy and what drives them, um, the more they can try to imagine a future that satisfies not only their intellectual curiosity but the very sort of prosaic conditions that they find themselves in on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes the answer is um, to be involved in leadership and maybe play a hand in shaping uh, what that organization is going to do. And I think there are great examples in this book of scientists who did that. Um, And, you know, inspiration is unpredictable. It comes from very different places. One of my favorite biographical tidbits about some of the uh, scientists that I follow in this book is that um, some of the people who rose to the greatest prestige and, and prominence in the National Cancer Institute didn't even major in biological sciences as undergraduates in college. They were English majors or art history majors. And I think that tells us something about the fact that creativity you know, isn't always constrained in the way that we might imagine it. And it might suggest that uh, people who are willing to make high risk career moves from, let's say, English to medicine, um, might be good examples of, of you know, how we can take risks as well. Um, so it might be inspiration, It it might just sort of be um, taking the, the more general ideas about how creativity operates in the confines of organizations to to try to be a little bit more self-conscious about our practice and, and the things that we want to actually see um, come into the world based on it. Um, but I do hope that reading about this, at least um, this case where scientists can be quite clear-headed about um, things besides money that motivate them because they're working for the federal government, I hope that that can give you know, the scientific reader, some clarity about um, what are their non-monetary incentives. What really drives them, um, and uh, how can they start to think about the stakes of their research and um, what do they value, and how do they see that in their work? Um, because you know, it's it's a grind. <laughs> I, I'm a, a social scientist, but I still am beholden to a lot of the the sort of you know structures and forces that other academics in, in other sciences are. And um, sometimes there's just stuff you have to do because you're, you're a, an academic scientist in, in a particular organizational context. And being able to sort of sit back and ask, you know, what do I value about this? What, what do I want to accomplish? Can be a source of satisfaction. Um, and I am certainly very privileged to, to be able to make a living um, studying scientists and the science that they do, because I find them endlessly fascinating. And, uh, you know, it, it's the ability to get these stories out to, to a broader audience who can appreciate them. That gives my work meaning. Um, and the idea that it might help scientists uh, helps me as well. Um, so uh, I, I hope that people can find some, some rich depository of, of knowledge in this book.
1: They will, I'm sure. And thank you very much for that, Natalie. That is Natalie Aviles. Uh, Her book, An Ungovernable Foe, Science and Policy Innovation in the U.S. National Cancer Institute, is out with Columbia University Press, so check that out. Thanks to you, my listeners, and bye-bye. And until next time, here on Scholarly Communication.